welcome back to an extra painful edition of In Our 1990s, a podcast where your two hosts are ranking all of the alternative albums from the 90s. And we're doing it even if we had a root canal. I'm your host, Natalie. I have the tooth pain still. Um, and with me, as always, is my, my non-tooth pain having co-host, at least this week, Hadrian. How are you doing, Hadrian? Um, not so bad, except for the endometriosis pain, so... Well, yeah, we're both in a bad way right now. Mine mine hurts when I talk, though, which is going to present a problem for podcasting. <laughs> and mine hurts when I live. It, yeah. But, um, so yeah, we, we may be truncated this week, um... Which is sad, because we have some stuff that's really worth talking about. Uh, yeah, we do. Um, regardless of... Th- this, just just going to say it now, this may be the widest gap in quality of albums we've oh. had on an episode. <laughs> um, so let, let's, uh, since, since I'm already in pain from just doing this intro, let's... Um, let me get my notes pulled up, and then we can get right into uh, our first album this week. Let's start with uh, None Such from 1992 by XTC. Uh, so you can talk and I can drink this ginger tea I have in front of me. Yes. So this is probably, m- this is my second favorite XTC album. My favorite is Skylarking, which came out in the mid-80s. And like this album, has a very focused theme. Uh, so... XTC takes their influence from the Beatles and a lot of psychedelic rock, and generally just uh, Andrew Partridge, who is lead singer and songwriter, uh, just whatever whim strikes him. And that is the hallmark of XTC, because so a song that probably everyone listening to this podcast will know is Dear God. Uh, and that, all, that song is now, if you look on Spotify, is attributed to being on Skylarking. And it isn't, officially. Because... Partridge hated it so much, he didn't like the arrangement, even though that's one of their most wildly successful, most well-known popular songs. Yeah, that and Making Plans for Nigel, I think, are like the two. Which he, I mean, even over Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead. Mm-hmm. And he was like, even though he stands, he so he he's like, it didn't quite get the message he wanted across, though if you listen to it, it is blisteringly atheistic, so I'm wondering if he just felt bad that it was so blisteringly atheistic. But... It's a good song, but and it was wildly successful, but Partridge looked at it and was like, I don't fucking care. And so that's what you're in for when it comes to XTC, because Andrew Partridge has listed, listed also known as Andy Partridge, he has gone on record saying that Nonesuch is his least disliked album that they did. It's almost okay. <laughs> I think this blows away the rest of XTC's albums, <laughs> and I like XTC. I, I think, the, it, like, to me, they were a band that kind of just kept getting better. Mm-hmm. I don't share your love of Skylarking. I, th- I think that one's a little bland, actually. But Oranges and Lemons, the one right before this, and this are just fucking fantastic. Well, I like I like Skylarking because so there was a critique of of Nonesuch is that XTC makes music about how great it is to just be how great it is to be British and how good British things are. And I don't what? think that's true. <laughs> no. Um but I can definitely get that if you listen if you don't listen to the depth and actual lyrics of his songs because in Skylarking it starts with this like the song called Summer's Cauldron which is my favorite XTC song. And it is just this like heady 
summertime, just wanting to like I'm going to drown in this like summer's cauldron and just let me just let me die in this like green realm, and so that's kind of what the whole album is. It's a big concept album about just like nature and uh, British mysticism. And it's fine. And then that was going to be ended by Dear God. So if you listen to it on Spotify now, it's ended by Dear God. I only bring this up because that album, I feel, is directly connected, not in, like, through lines to references, but in, like, sort of format to Nunsuch, which starts off with the Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead and kind of has this, like, political folk history kind of stance to the way he's talking about subjects. So it's all wrapped in the framing of how the album is presented, which has the picture of a, a long since the demolished British castle on the cover, which was the Nunsuch Palace. And it's there there's a there's a medieval flow to this album that's not necessarily directly in its music, but there are definitely elements of it. Um, I would say that Rook is maybe the epitome of that mm-hmm. because Rook is, so that song was written after that was him coming out of a period of writer's block and it is so Eleanor Rigby and Eleanor Rigby is actually written in the, like maybe unintentionally, like I don't think anyone's really sure. Um, but that song is, um, like modal mm-hmm. instead of, uh, a more, um, contemporary sort of scale. And so, and Rook sounds so much like Eleanor Rigby. It really does. I love Rook. That's yeah. One of my it's, it's one of my favorite. I mean, Eleanor Rigby is one of my favorite Beatles songs. So, and, and that's why I think if, you, if we're going to, we've talked a lot about people who are, are bands that are influenced by the Beatles. I feel XTC really could have been a spiritual successor to the Beatles. If Partridge didn't hate everything he did, which I love that about Partridge because he, He's a very John Lennon figure of just like, oh, fuck it. I don't I don't want it anymore. Even though he is just like this like beautiful musician. And then you're just like, why do you hate this? He's like, it doesn't sound right. And he just walks off. You're like, but it sounds good. Come back. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to oversimplify this album, but it is very much um, like a very strong through line in these songs is uh, like the White Album meets Pet Sounds. Yeah. Um, because I mean, there are the like Pet Sounds. I think is like a bigger influence on this than the Beatles, at a time when being influenced by Pet Sounds wasn't the cliche that it is now. Um, I mean, because these harmonies are just so Beach so Boys, yeah. And the song um, "Humble Daisy" is just straight up some Pet Sounds production, very much so. And I like that they can flow within that because there are there are songs in this album that are very clearly intended to be charting hits. But I don't think that was necessarily the goal. They were the ones that were definitely pushed as singles, which was uh, Peter Pumpkinhead and The Disappointed. Uh, I think Madame Barnum also got released as a single. Yeah, there was a third, but I don't remember which one it was. Because Dear Madame Barnum is very good. Um, But that was... So the weird history of that song is apparently he wrote it much, much earlier. Uh, It was written before XCC was even a band. Yeah, which I I was not aware of. I, I don't really know a ton about XTC's history. It's arty is kind of a, a good descriptor. <laughs> like it's it's very I don't have a, a full background. I just know that Andrew Partridge is legendary in the way that he can write lyrics and construct a song and sing. And 
he's he's one of those guys that like I you feel I wouldn't like his voice that much because he does a lot of weird stuff with it. But I think I like it because he does a lot of weird stuff because yeah. he can he can flow from sounding like Peter Gabriel to just clearly being himself to approaching like Paul McCartney, and you're just like. What is happening here? <laughs> he he kind of reminds me of David Gedd from The Wedding Present. I get like that. that dude basically just sounds like Robin Leach from Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous yeah. singing, but like it works. And like Andy Partridge similarly has a voice that I mean, like you said, it just kind of doesn't. He definitely does not sound like a pop star. No, but and he never I can't. Been. But I also can't imagine anyone else except for Brian Wilson singing these songs. So yeah, his voice is so integral to the way his, the, the, their music flows. It's like, but if and if you listen to, we're only making plans for Nigel compared to like the ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead. It, like those almost sound like completely different people singing, even though you know in the way that his range works, it's the same person. Well, yeah, and it was you know over They're almost, ten years apart, almost yeah. In like 12 years. Making I, Plans for Nigel was like 79, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it'd be like 12 years. Yeah. But yeah, it's... But he has a very consistent sound. And I, I'm just going to say, I think this is their best album. Because it, it's everything that... It's a showcase of everything that they could do as a band. Even their deep, ridiculous uh, psychedel like psychedelia. Like, I need to pull up the song. I can never remember the title of it. But I think it is that wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's just like, it's om- Omnibus and that wave are like deep, hardcore psychedelic songs. And yeah, I, definitely Omnibus. I, I can see that. Omnibus, boy, those lyrics haven't aged well. <laughs> no, they have not. <laughs> like, like, I saw a quote from him that he was like, oh, I don't care if people think this song is sexist. And I was like, I don't think it's sexist, but it's pretty fucking racist. <laughs> it, <laughs> Which, I mean, it's 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 benign racism, but uh, it still- does talk about the black-skinned girls who make your shaped spear hard and the gold skin girls who make your bamboo curl <sighs> doesn't play well in 2020 and it doesn't it doesn't help that he also has kind of a denny elfman inflection on some of these on some of those lyrics which there's a there's a very like my my appreciation of denny elfman i think is tied to my appreciation of andy partridge because they have similar methodology when it comes to beats and lyrics and their voices they have completely different sounding voices, but they have similar um, depth of range. If that makes sense, they are they are musician ass musicians. Like that is just true, <laughs> and it is amazing to see them try to make pop music, even though neither neither one of them made pop music in a way that is what we would consider pop music today. But Oingo Boingo had you know more hardcore like hits, like Weird Science fucking popped. In a way that Dear God popped for XTC, but Partridge hated it. So, yeah, I feel like though the difference is Oingo Boingo were more of their time. Yes. And this is very, XTC is very classic, even though, I mean, they were around for so long that they practically overlapped with, <laughs> with bands like the Beach Boys. Um, but yeah, so I, like the song, so the second song in the album, My Bird Performs, 
Um, that one, it like at first I thought it was another one that was a little like, like I I read it as like my bird, like my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. But l- reading the lyrics, I think what it's actually about is loving low art. Yeah. And like pop music, for example. Um, and and you know the joy and beauty that you can find in that, which XTC definitely found. Oh yeah. In a way that very few bands do. And that's one of the reasons I like them so much is that they're they're pretentious as fuck, but in, but in a weirdly unpretentious way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like, like they're very smart, and but they're also I mean they'll also sing a song like Omnibus. Yeah, and so it's like when I like uh, a lot of you know I like the Divine Comedy, but I will also listen to you know Dev, you know like, <laughs> and it's. It's a full. It's a big range there. So, so did you see that um, the bands, or the rep that they had at their record label when they started, heard this album and said, "Throw it all out. This is garbage." Yes, and that actually started a <laughs> huge feud with their record label. Yeah, which they basically just sat it out until that person was no longer with the label and then resubmitted the same album and fortunately got it released. I cannot fucking imagine hearing this album and being like. There's nothing good on here. Just get rid of it all. Yeah, it's like this the, is an utter the, failure. Like the fucking dis- the disappointed alone, which I love that song. You maybe don't, but like, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not a big. It's not my least favorite song in the album. I think that one is the most like early '90s sounding, which it, is why I'm not a huge fan of it. It hits me in a weird way. It's like the a sec- they they carry me carry me on their shoulders to a secret shadow land where a somber marching band plays a a tune for broken hearts and i'm yeah, just like the lyrics are oh! way better than the music on that one but the video is super good too um so there are two videos that i know of i don't know i don't there's not a video for dear madam bottom which is sad needed to be a video for that song that is a song that is craving a video but there is one for peter pumpkinhead and it's jfk the whole song is just through the JFK assassination. So it cuts to, you know, uh, and, and Andy Partridge like singing very dramatically. <gasps> and then it's just the JFK assassination. And I was like, I don't know if this song is about JFK. I thought this was more about Jesus. And I don't know if you would actually... I don't know what you're actually trying to say here. Well, technically, he based the song on a jack-o'-lantern that he left rotting in his backyard a long time after Halloween and then added all the messianic Im- imagery to it. So it's that song's kind of like a jokey throwaway. Like it's, Which is funny because I think it actually says some smart shit, which is the problem with the songs that he throws away because like, it's like he... So in Dear God, he's just like, hey, uh, people can't get enough to eat and they... Uh, are dying on the streets because of you, dear God. And then this one is just like, uh, that he taught the Vatican what gold's for. I'm like, fuck, like, you were saying shit, and then you walk away from the shit you've said, being like, no, oh, you know, it was a joke. Or, I don't like it. And then, like, and you just side-eye his, <laughs> that man's entire career, being like, bitch, you were into some, like, murmurs dance level green socialism and i'm here for it but just own your shit just own your shit son yeah um i think well okay so a couple of other songs i want to shout out holly up on poppy is one of my favorites um so that one's about his daughter holly 
and her rocking horse, uh, Poppy. And he said he was trying to write a song about his, uh, you know, he basically was saying in, you know, these are my words, not his, but, um, like when songwriters try to write songs about their children, it's always cringy. And he was like, just, he was just trying to write a song about his daughter that was not cringy. I I don't think he entirely succeeded. He does better than most. He did. He did manage to not do a two chains. I, so, I don't think I've heard Two Chains the song about his daughter. No, 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 no. So it, oh. what I'm talking about is a lyrical. Like I'm talking about Nicky, Nicky, Nicky. There ain't no keys in this doohickey. Oh, yeah. Well. So, so um, it's like Holly, bomb popping, and then he doesn't end the next line with an E word, which would have been super easy to do. He takes that easy rhyme and then subverts it, and you're like. Oh, this motherfucker can write lyrics. I'm fine with this song. Because, like, when I first listened to that song for this, I was like, oh, no, I hope he doesn't. Oh, he didn't. Oh, this is Andrew Partridge. I forgot. He's very good at this. <laughs> well, I also, part of what I like about that song is the bass line. For me, it, like, this may be a thing that no one else would hear in the song, but, um, for, because that song was a major earworm for me all week. Oh, it absolutely is. Um, it kept my brain kept wanting to take that bass line and go into the song "Killing the Cabinet" by Trash Can Sinatra's. I can hear that, but it, it's the thing that it, like sets it apart. It, it, I feel like like that bass line, especially, and just the rhythm of that song is kind of like the early Morrissey, like international playboys, like pomp and circumstance. But then it takes these hard, like dissonant jazz turns that you know morrissey or even the trash and sinatra's would never have done um and and that's just like another example of how this band was kind of on another level from their contemporaries of just you know they just throw in these these moments of dissonance that you just didn't hear in pop music at the time Oh yeah, I, and that's and that's kind of another influence on this. I mean, I you know it's easy to say it sounds like Pet Sounds and and you know the the sort of jazzier stuff that the Beatles did, which I think is you know more of a white album thing. But um, there's some real Sergeant Pepper in this, though. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Sergeant Pepper for sure. Like Dear um, Madam Barnum is just like straight up. Yeah, that like vaudevillian musical stuff that oh, was on Sergeant God, Pepper. I fucking love that song. The more I, I <laughs> listened to that song so many times this week, I listened to Holly Up on Poppy uh, a lot. Then Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead, of course, I grew up on that song. But like, yeah. fucking dear Madame Barnum, I'm just like this song hits <laughs> in a way that like. <laughs> but yeah, the sort of dissonant like jazz fusion stuff is is really prominent on this album, and like that stuff can get really cheesy, but it's it's like so good every time they do it. They know what they're doing. They're they're confident musicians. They're coming to their own. They there is nothing overachieving on this album. I don't think it, it's it's all just like stuff that doesn't quite work is just a little bit cringe, but it's not so bad that you just be like, oh, you know, you wrote a bad song. The only song that I just straight up don't like on the album is the last one, Books Are Burning. Yes. That that song is like, I don't know. I've come up short on trying to think of like what influenced that, but it's just this kind of not, there's no hook to it. I mean, I guess you can say the repetition of Books Are Burning at the beginning of each verse, but like it, it, it just 
nothing grabbed me on that song at all. I think it was more just him taking a stance on, like, you know, combustible knowledge than it is supposed to be a good song. <laughs> yeah. As there, there are some times in, throughout all of XTC's career where there's a song that means a whole lot, and you're just like, mm-hmm, I get it, and I'm done with that song. <laughs> I, also, the amount of like Burt Bacharach influence and Wrapped in Grey, I, I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Burt Bacharach's great, <laughs> and uh, the other one that like kind of blew my mind, and I have no idea if Andy Partridge ever heard this album, but War Dance did that not sound just like the Happy Family to you? Like even down to the lyrics. Oh yeah, it absolutely that is did. Such a Happy Family song, which is if you don't know, that's that was Momus's band prior to him. Going solo and becoming Momus, like his his post punk. That's when he was in a, a Scottish art rock band. Yeah, with members of Joseph K. Um, but it was poppier than Joseph K. And I mean, everything about War Dance reminded me of the Happy Family. I have a so obviously I loved it. <laughs> so like, I mean, he's clearly a, of an age where he would have absolutely been able to find that stuff easily. Like, and probably yeah. have been like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to Scotland right now and just see what the kids are doing. And he absolutely would have picked up on that. So I, I think he did. And we'll never know. Yeah. I mean, it would not surprise me at all, but it also wouldn't surprise me if they just came to the same thing separately. Yeah. I, I don't know. There's a lot of influence on what, what XCC does and especially. But but this is a a good example of someone who is very influenced by other artists making it their own. Yeah. And it's 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 you can be heavily influenced by somebody and create beautiful amazing music. And that's kind of I wanted to do this album. There's another XTC album in the 90s, but it doesn't matter compared to this one that is so good and just so ridiculous. And I I'm glad you had a, a, a good experience with it because oh, I, yeah. I needed yeah. you to to understand. <laughs> yeah, um, and and I hadn't really listened to a ton of XTC. I'm, I'm ashamed to say. Um, I I do have a funny story about how I heard the Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead. Uh, there was a back in in 1992, 1993. Um, a local radio station here back before clear channel, you know, had completely monopolized radio in America. Um, the, uh, what was our local, like the biggest local, like pop music station decided to do an alternative show late at night. And so I had, uh, had, I had set up my tape recorder to tape the show. Cause I was like, that's when I was working at night. And cause I was, you know, a teenager <laughs> and, um, the first, the first song on the first episode of the, their alternative show was Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead. I'm guessing because he says, let's begin at the start. Yep, that sounds <laughs> um, good. Yeah, and so that was, and I didn't know, I don't think they said who it was by, or like, I, it cut off the, my recording cut off everything before the beginning of that song. I don't know, but I, I feel like I didn't know who it was at first, and then I found out later. But I always loved that song. I mean, that's it's that that song is just instantly, you know, it doesn't that that's more of like a jingle pop, you know, like eighties mm-hmm. college college rock kind of song. Um, it doesn't have the weird jazz stuff or the Beach Boys harmonies. Like I think if I had listened to this whole album back then, off of how much I liked Peter Pumpkinhead, I, I would have hated it. 
because I just wasn't ready yet. Like it took me a few more years to be to accept that like there was a cool Beach Boys album. <laughs> this this is very much an adults album, and that's it's kind of kind of where honestly XTC is kind of an adults band. Like it, it is not to be like, well, you're too young to understand. I think you just need to have listened to a lot of music to go, oh, these guys are very influenced by this artist and they do it well. And like that's and I like music like that. And they managed to make that influence their own thing. And the Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead is fucking great. I danced to that as a child. <laughs> yeah, it's it's excellent. The whole album is excellent. Um So Let's see what what are you thinking on ranking this one? Number three. Okay, why do you think this shouldn't be number one? Because I think it should be number one. Really? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say number one. I was just managing my expectations. Yes, I do think it should be number one because I mean it is... it's like I don't have the overwhelming like like emotional response I have to get lost, but like. It's like objectively, this it's so so fucking. Good. This is a fucking triumph of an album, yeah. and that, that's and that's why like people sleep on XTC and they don't think about them, and then you like Skylarking, for instance. I didn't like most of that album early on, and now it is like my favorite one, and it's and I think it's better than this one in a lot of ways, but only because it speaks to my taste in particular. But this album speaks to a broad spectrum of tastes and really showcases everything they can do. So yeah. I, I was going to say number three just to be polite, but yeah, I do think it's number one. I think that it is just this like ballsy show of force that they didn't even, they didn't even try to meet again because they didn't have to. Yeah. It's, it's a masterpiece. There's no other way to, to put it. I mean, it's, it's very nearly a perfect album in my opinion. Yeah. They have some, some songs that don't hit so much, but like even the songs that you think, oh, I don't know, within like, cause sometimes you hear a song in the first few bars and you're like, oh, this is going to be annoying as shit. And then it swerves. Yeah. Uh, that's how I was with that wave and bungalow. I thought mm-hmm. both of those sucked at first, but then when I let them go, it's like, yeah, they both start weak, but then they get good. Yeah. Really the only song I don't don't at least like is is books are burning um i mean i i think the disappointed is not like fantastic musically but it's it's good it's uh, just it's just the most of its time of the, all this. the video for that song is so good and i think it's maybe because i was fucked up on renaissance fairs but like it's just that that song is an aesthetic work of art <laughs> and <laughs> it is you have to kind of get all of this. You have to get all of it in one go. You have to see the video to really get that. that yeah, I will watch the video and see if it mitigates the extremely like nineteen ninety one like. Well, it, it's, not not adult contemporary, but the, you know there was like it, it's very like Toad the West Sprocket to me. No, I, I get that, but I think there's a there's a certain tone struck by the way the video is produced that is supposed to be invocative of a certain kind of 90s like malaise that was already setting in in 92 and that's kind of what that song is it is a, it is a malaise as a song but yeah i'm kind with it i'm fine i'm happy with it being number one because i wanted it to be number one because this is genuinely their best album yeah i mean it's i i don't think there's anything that we've talked about that i mean even in objective terms, even the songwriting on Get Lost and Liberation is like 
not in the same league as this. Yes. Yeah. No, Andrew Partridge is a mad genius who hates everything he's ever touched, and I wish he didn't, but you know what? He gives us beautiful art, and I'm fine with that. All right. Well, this one's going to go at number one, new number one. I was not expecting that. I mean, I was... Um, but then the more I listened to it, I was just like, this has to be number one. This is just better than everything else we've done. And that was the thing. I was like... I know the more she listens to it, it's going to get in her brain. I'm like, it's it's going to stick, and it does. I mean, does. again, as much of a cliche as it is, I fucking love Pet Sounds, and this sounds enough like Pet Sounds that... They but, get, but also, you like, individual, and it, like, it's not just a Pet Sounds knockoff, even though it uses, like, the same, like, the the sort of, like, treated piano sound in uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice, like, that that sound, even though it's done on guitar on this album, I think, is, is like, repeated throughout, and the harmonies are repeated throughout, and it's, it's so This good. is why they're such a good band, is that they get what's good, and then they make it their own. And that's why they listen to Pet Sounds... I'm not going to say they directly took it, but like you listen to Pet Sound, you're like, we can make that our own. No, they, they directly took it. <laughs> There's no <laughs> doubt in my mind. <laughs> it does, you do not sound this overwhelmingly like Pet Sounds and not mean to. But, but, yeah, but no, they did it in 1992 when nobody was fucking influenced by the Beach Boys. They did this while the Beach Boys were doing Kokomo. So. Oh, man, I remember that. Actually, yeah. I guess that was 89, but still. Well, it was still the, you know. the, there was a Muppet show that would show the reruns of the Kokomo of, like, video of the of the Muppets doing Kokomo on the beach. That's my... Yeah, let's, let's just forget about everything that happened after Kokomo, the, the Mike Love Beach Boys, but, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with this because I was, I was hoping, but I wasn't getting my hopes too high. Which is why I said number three first. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No, this is number one. So. All right. Let's take a break. I'm going to drink some more tea and then we will talk about uh, rest of development. And we are back, and it's time for me to do the majority of the talking, and I forgot to... Oh, I've drank all my tea. Well, shit. Go make some tea. That's a problem. No, it'll take too long. Um, I'll just power through it and then take painkillers. All right, so our second album this week is also from 1992. It's by Arrested Development. Their debut album, Three Years, Five Months, and Two Days in the Life Of. So titled because that's how long it took them to get this record out from their formation. So um, Arrested Development was formed in 1988 uh, by a rapper whose stage name is Speech and a he goes by turntablist. I mean, I would say DJ, but however you want to phrase it, uh, went by the name of Headliner. And this album, unlike um, None Such, was extremely critically acclaimed at the time it was released. Um, the, at the time, very respected, uh, Paz and Jop critics poll in the Village Voice gave it the album of the year. Um, The Wire's critics choice, it won that year when the, it was the first time a rap artist ever won the best new artist Grammy. Um, also won best rap performance by a duo or group and, uh, band of the year for Rolling Stone. <laughs> and the album sold really over bad. 6 million copies. This album is not good. So, 
there has been a critical reappraisal of this album, I would say. Um, I, I mean, if you weren't around, I mean, because so the the punchline to all that all the accolades I just rattled off is that Arrested Development's second album flopped, and they're still putting out records, but they, I mean, they basically just fell apart, <laughs> and then and like nobody remembers them now. <laughs> unless you're in in way into alternative hip-hop um because they were a very important early example of that i just don't know how this album got a hook because like i've listened to diggable planets a thousand times before i've listened to this oh yeah i mean in retrospect like diggable planets is so much better but at the time it was it diggable planets was like Oh yeah, you know, if you like Arrested Development, here's the thing that's like not as good, but it'll hold you over till the next Arrested Development album. Um, and Tennessee was just a massive, massive hit, and that song still, still a bop, like de- easily the best song on the album. Oh, I absolutely, think. yes. Um, one of the only songs that isn't just what didn't just make me make my skeleton want to crawl out of my skin with the lyrics. Uh, it's certainly not a fucking people every day. <laughs> yeah. So let's so, start on that one. Yeah. Before we get into that, let's just like sort of give an idea of like for people who don't know, like Arrested Development was they they kind of conducted themselves, and I think this was like something that made them different and cool at the time. And the things that I'm gonna say positive about this album are all kind of gonna come back to this, but they were really almost more of an artist collective yeah like like speech and headliner were the the main people but like they have credits like credits on this album for like their spiritual elder baba oj and their stylist like both get were both considered members of the band and like be on stage with them and so like that was cool and people hadn't seen anything like it before in the in not in the mainstream anyway and they had that vibe of you know sort of like how Dateable planets had the like hepcat 60s jazz band vibe like arrested development had this like hippie art collective vibe yeah and they were extremely influenced by the philosophy of Afrocentrism. And as two white people, I don't think that we should say a whole lot about Afrocentrism. No, it was um, a thing that they believed in. If you want to, like, the the gist of Afrocentrism is that it was in, like a, I don't want to say alternative history because it's not like Holocaust denial or something like that. It's it's nowhere near like that. But it's a a different way of looking at history that's intended to decolonialize. It's also it's a reclamation of history. It, it's trying yeah. to supplant a intent a a very brutal extraction of history with well we should celebrate this and it's a, a movement that like it, it's it like those are good things like yes. those are things that need to happen i don't like just just read read about afrocentrism for yourself and i think that there is a cogent critique that can be made of it even though i think its aims are are good and still need to be addressed and there and then there are some uh also brands that occur around afrocentrism that i feel this album kind of blends itself into in, let's in just ways. say this was a progenitor of, of hoteps yes <laughs> the, the, if you if you are aware of what a hotep is oof. again as two white people 
just not gonna say a whole lot about it. I don't. No, neither of us feel wanna... we had to mention it though because yeah, one of these you songs can't talk about Arrested Development without talking about Afrocentrism, and and you can't. I don't know. Maybe maybe you can talk about it without talking about Hoteps, but like we wanna, I I per- I know. personally cannot listen to the song People Every Day. Without... People Every Day is very Hotep. It so, is. But so okay, so the point of of arrested Deve- of arrested development was that this was supposed to be you know put it in context against groups like NWA and like early like Ice Cube's first solo album like Easy Well, they directly call out uh, Ice Cube on this album. Yeah, and like Ice T and uh so they were they set themselves up and really played up we are an alternative to that, which is what made this alternative hip-hop in, in a sense i mean also just the sound and the whole sort of you know collectivist attitude of it um but this is like overwhelmingly not positive <laughs> like the fact that they they don't like gangster rap it, is their their pause their idea of positive hip-hop starts from here's all the shit we don't like and it and it just gets so preachy. It's like the Bill Cosby of hip hop. Before all the allegations, like Bill Cosby had a real fucking stance. Yeah. On just like any sort of divergent culture that wasn't white assimilation, and that's. And and, and I'm, we should absolutely point out that we are not saying that Arrested Development is all about white assimilation. They are absolutely they're decidedly not. They are... not like no, not but... like that is how they differ from. I mean, aside from not being, but they've come criminals. to the same moralistic, um, somewhat conservative conclusions. Yeah, um, not going the same route. So, like, it, it's so when we talk about Bill Cosby and we talk about Afrocentrism, there is a, a, a through line of some conservatism that needs to be addressed because it is conservative. It is like, well, I'm better put together than this person, and that makes me inherently better, and I'm like, let's not... Right, and what I do feel comfortable addressing as a white person, like, I'm not gonna get into, like, internecine conflicts between you know, black people of different political bents, but what I do feel uh, comfortable in talking about is how yeah, like, despite having some very, like having some liberal or leftist messaging there's also some really conservative regressive shit it's very it's very progressive in the terms of like the concept of wealth uh, and like the necessity and, for money and they were talking about anti-colonialism in music before anyone else in, yes. in mainstream pop music um and I, I say mainstream i mean this is alternative but it was everybody knew who arrested development yes. was in 1992 <laughs> everybody had heard tennessee um yeah so it may be easier to just sort of go through the songs uh, like I'd, the one other thing i want to say is that like and we'll get into this as we discuss individual songs but like there is like a real like there i don't know if gender politics is the right term but like gender relations is like their attitudes there are so like evangelical christian and that's where the hotep statement comes in is that like it's a a modern day comparison to this kind of 
treatment of women in your in your appraisal of things right and and i think that like this is a place where either i i don't know to what extent this can be tied to afrocentrism but it, maybe it's where they failed afrocentrism was is i mean is that not just accepting the, the colonizer's religion and and religious attitudes yeah there's, there's like, a lot of, there's a lot of god on this album and so this is so it's very similar uh, to something that, that people are more familiar with nowadays but like if you listen to you know, Fear of a Black Planet era public enemy, Chuck D was saying some of the same shit, where it was kind of like, we're all about revolution, and you're like, yeah, fuck yeah, revolution. And then he's like, and the women are going to stay home and raise our black babies. <laughs> and it's like, oh, uh, I was with you there, Chuck, and then you... And then you, then you did a swerve. And that's, that's, I mean, the first song on the album, Mama's Always on Stage, is, you know... Hey, congratulations, you made the right choice and didn't abort your black baby. And don't worry, we're all going to be here to help you raise him. Which is like, that's good in in theory, there's nothing wrong with it. But then as the album progresses, you can kind of see like... But we'd rather you stay home and, and raise more. the so, baby. Yeah, it's like, it's like we're not... It's like the support isn't just because we we are a community and that's what we do it, it's this very like that is your role yeah and it i mean this is the most fucking incel album <laughs> i am convinced <laughs> that speech had never had sex when he was writing this album <laughs> um i mean just like uh, the song you like i just, just want to read some of these lyrics go ahead from the song you because you is just a letter surrounded by a better image of a sister who's new but overdue for marriage. Because I want, not need, a companion to feed the knowledge I read and the loving I've received. Uh, um, I, I let down all my defenses, let you and your entire family in my sight? What? Only you can relate to me. Only you can relieve me. In, in my world, there's just us three, you, me, and G.O.D., <sighs> um natural this is from the song natural your beauty is endless and i'm hoping to explore brothers may say you're ugly but i disagree so great to start off with negging um but in a way that's fine with me because i want to travel with you travel in your mind because you seem like a virgin gross and then the the line i, I tweeted this the other day or I, I subtweeted this line. <laughs> but anytime someone says this in a song, and this isn't the only song I've heard it in, but uh, anytime someone says a line like, I want to be sleeping in you, I want to be inside you, I want to be sleeping deep in you, they have never had sex. Because <laughs> that might sound romantic, but if you've had sex and you think about collapsing on top of someone with your with your crusty hog inside them and going to sleep. <laughs> I can't think of anything less romantic than that. <laughs> well, uh, if I already didn't have, you know, stances about things, I certainly have them now. And and I, I won't read a whole... Uh, all of the lyrics I copied down for Dawn of the Dreads, but it starts off with him talking about how he's a bit shorter than the average man. And it's like, I, I, there's a real fear that if speech had been 
a young man in in the you know post 2014 let's say he'd have been posting on r slash red pill <laughs> about how if he just had you know what is it two millimeters of bone mm-hmm. on his chin two millimeters then of bone. he'd be the one getting the women oh so, man like, just the most unromantic attempts at love songs I didn't. Yeah, nothing in this album read as a love song. Even the one where he's defending the, the people every day, where he's defending his girlfriend. It's just like. Uh, speaking of subreddits, that one's r slash that happened. Like that song oh. sounds about. It sounds like Fraser Crane talking about getting in a fight. <laughs> I think Fraser would be able to hold his own. Come on. It's. I think, I think there is a whole Fraser episode about him accidentally getting into a fight. Like so, people every day was was the other big single which, after Tennessee, which is hilarious because it swerves exactly the way that um, Hard Knocks Life swerves. Um, so I feel Jay Z listened to this song, of course he did, and then made it better, and that's fine. Well, and I don't, I don't know. I mean, yes, I was like old enough to sort of like understand what this album was about when it came out. But obviously, as a white kid in an overwhelmingly white town, um, like there were literally no black people in the town I grew up in. There were there were a couple of Asian people and a couple of Hispanic people. Um, I didn't know what the how this would have been perceived at the time, but like it, it's doing a thing that racists do now, where they differentiate between black people and n words. And this was the first time I ever heard that. Which, which to be fair, Ice Cube also kind of does that on the song Us. Which I mean, and 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 people every day they are that's the song they directly call it Ice Cube. So yeah, but Ice Cube did it in a way that was like offering a specific critique and had the message the, the same message of black people have to stop fighting each other. But without, like, he was putting down everybody in that song. Yeah. Whereas speech in the song is very much like, I am great and enlightened, and all you inwards don't get, like, you need to get on the African thing that I'm on. It's it's a class disparity, and, like, he's using his usage of, of the inward as a, as a direct class disparity. And I don't think it would... He would say it that way now. Well, at the time he was writing it, but that is exactly how. No, it comes I, off. I, I listen to some of their new stuff, their newest stuff, to prepare for this, and like it does sound like he's matured a lot. Yeah, but in here, it definitely comes off as like, "Well, you you are below me, and this is why I'm going to say this word." And I'm like, right. "Man, don't do that." Right, and you you kind of have to hear it in the context of the whole album, where he's just repeatedly like. You know, in in Tennessee, when he says, like, I ask you, Lord, why do you enlighten me without the enlightenment of all my folks? Yeah. Like, settle down there. Yeah, he's very clearly, like, being like, I'm I'm on a different level. Yeah. And I'm like, no, man, you need to not do that, because that doesn't actually help anybody. And there are just so many songs on this album where the point is, speech is better than you. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, he's not, like... And it's like no, you sound like you sound like a nineteen-year-old. I, I wish, <laughs> I wish to fuck that Ice Cube had given enough of a fuck to fucking drag these guys because 
imagine what would have happened if Ice Cube decided he was just going to come for speech. I, th- I mean, I think that there were gangster rappers who did, like, shit on them for this. Because they kind of... I want to say they kind of, like, got so humiliated that they kind of, like, walked it back a little bit. Well, they would have to. Because, like, I get why this album was praised, but, like, it was... I think it was that kind of... It was the NPR white people level right, of praise. it's that really uncomfortable praise. And I don't remember if we talked about this with Digable Planets, because Digable Planets didn't do this. No, Digable Planets um, is very consistent in their messaging. Yeah, like, they were just, we're doing our thing, you do your thing, and it's cool. And, but we're, there, so, and there we're, is, we're fucking space communists. It's yeah, fine. but there is this, like, anytime I see a rap album like this, that, like, where... Part of the black community critiques the negative stereotypes of of the black community or more specifically the people who embody those stereotypes there are a lot of white critics who are like see this is real rap they get it they they know that you don't have to talk about bitches and hoes and it's like oh just oh it's so gross so <laughs> before, before we started recording this podcast i find i did go to twitter and and type in is Breast Development Hotep rap into Twitter just to see what would happen. <laughs> and there were some responses on Black Twitter, which uh, said, well, I mean, kind of, but no, like, they learn better. And I'm like, so it was very much like everyone's aware that, like, this first album was very much going a place that they had to swiftly jettison from. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they tripled down on it on their follow-up album that flopped. Um, and we will get to talk about that one because that was in 1996. Uh, so look forward to, uh, to Zingalama Dooney, the follow-up to this album. But yeah, whenever it comes to, to music these days, I, I just take the appraisal of the internet before I say anything about it. Um, particularly when it comes to, to hip-hop uh, and rap. I'm just like... I, I just let I just let Twitter say things and I'm go like I'm going to listen and I'm going to listen to everyone's opinion and then I will not say anything on the internet. <laughs> so okay. the the oh sorry go ahead. No, it's fine. Um the last like resoundingly negative thing I want to say before I talk about some of the stuff I liked is the song Mr. Wendell. Boy, does that song suck in 2020. So Mr. Wendell is about their magical homeless friend who apparently it's based on a real person and they really did have this kind of interactions with him. And it's just like how it's just such a romanticization of homelessness and and this just really fucking egregious, just like all the wisdom they can learn from this man who who he doesn't need your your houses and your rules and your suburban lifestyle. It's like he could probably benefit from it. Though, yeah, bitch. he probably would have liked to have had it. Like, like running water and some heat, son. And it just really makes me wonder, like, what this interaction looked like from his side. Like, if he found this, like, if he just wanted to fucking smack them whenever they came well, around. Well, it, it, re- it reminds me of, uh, so I don't know if you've seen, uh, if you ever watched the, the dramatization of Dolomite on uh, Netflix. Uh, no, I haven't. I need right, to. So there's a, se- there's, there's a sequence there where uh, Dolomite's putting together his act, and he gets the name Dolomite from a homeless man who came to the record store that he works at. And so he goes out to where the homeless men tend to congregate, buys them a bunch of booze, and he's like, I need you all your stories. I need all your stories. I want to tell, I'm going to tell your stories. 
And these guys are like, okay, sure. Like they don't, they don't have, they are in, you know, dire situations in LA home in the LA homeless community. And he takes all of their like braggadocio and wordplay and puts it on stage and, and then goes back into that community later and buys the, the hotel everyone's sleeping in and kicks everyone out. Like, so it's, uh, <laughs> and those, those are things that we can say did happen in Dolomite's experience. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what this is. It's like, so if you are taking something from somebody, oh, this is the quote unquote wisdom you're getting from someone who is in a dire situation, you owe it to them to maybe perhaps try to better the situation in ways that is not, you know, invalidating their personhood, but could do to benefit their community. And I don't think that just saying like, oh, he could just do without is a, it is not an acceptable stance. Yeah, and again, to be fair, like, part of, like, Arrested Development were not, like, rich rock stars when this was happening. No, no. I mean, this this album blew up huge, and it, you know, probably set them up for life, but, like, this isn't the equivalent of, like, you know, Jeff Bezos going into... Uh, like meeting a homeless guy and being like here have two dollars and also you know this is 1992 two dollars went a lot farther than it oh yeah does now <laughs> but like like whatever the current equivalent of that would like here have five dollars you know it's it's not these incredibly wealthy people who could do a whole lot more um like my problem with the song is not that like they didn't buy the guy a house it's it's the attitude of like like he has gained all this wisdom that that we should all be seeking no, he he's dealing. It's a trauma response, and he's dealing with pain. Like, don't. and like, I just don't know how it's different than the magical Negro trope. Like, the magical homeless person <laughs> and the magical Negro are like Sorry. very I, similar tropes. I just I just cut to Key and Peele. <laughs> and yeah, the warring magical. Oh yeah. God. So yeah, th- this is that. Um, and I hope that it had that ending. Uh, no, it's. Uh, so, so okay so something i really like on this album uh the song give a man a fish i think is really great um mm-hmm. it's like the best lyrics on the album by far oh by sure yeah um it, and it's kind of the song about um you know it's the closest they get to like getting deep into class consciousness because they they specifically talk about like the black and white people getting together to overthrow the you know overthrow the oppressive systems and it's and it's weird because on the song right before it, <laughs> Fishing for Religion, it has the really obnoxious line about like, like I like I how he doesn't like to listen to a preacher shout because shouting doesn't do anything; it just makes you lose your voice. Yeah, which is like it's just so like again, like I mean, I just said they weren't like rich rock stars, but that just seems like such a privileged thing to say. Um. It's, but then on the very next song, he's like, the reason I don't like gangsters is because they they don't shoot at the right people, which is like way more palatable in 2020. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's like... I, I still think there's a lot of just like not thinking about his about class disparity, even within marginalized groups, because that exists. And I think that's like, well, we all have it bad, so therefore everyone should act better and this is how we do this. And I was like... Uh, but there's there are a lot of systemic issues that you need to really address before you'd be like well if you just you know don't make gangster rap things will be better i'm like that's not that's not the answer 
Yeah, so, like, it's weird. That song weirdly stood out to me because, I mean, it almost, like, the lyrics almost read, like, Run the Jewels, like, in the in the sense that it's, like, we all have to get together and fight against, because we're all oppressed by the, by the same shit. But Run the Jewels is way more deliberate about what they're talking about when they talk about things like that, because it's, like, when are we gonna, you know... <laughs> kill those police motherfuckers right, and take right. over a jail. I mean, and, like, the, and that's what this, and that's what that part of the song says, just in you know less direct language. Um, but then it also kind of ties that in with like a DIY attitude toward music because they talk about like now that we've been here and now that we have this album, we have contacts, and so you can't take it away from us now because we can do it ourselves. And it talks about you know mass incarceration. Yeah. And it's just like that's that is it's the most progressive song on the album. Um But it's heavily in like coded by everything else they've said. And yeah, I mean it's it's weird and it like it is at odds with a lot of it. It I don't know if And I think that that, that speaks to their greater evolution as artists. But there was definitely a mindset that was like we need to uplift one another. However, if you drink 40s on the street, I'm going to come for you. And I'm like, but maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should talk about why people prefer to drink a 40 on the <laughs> sidewalk rather than deal with the rat race of a, you know, dehumanizing existence. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's why this album is not necessarily so good. Yeah. Like, it, it's it's weird to me because the, the concept of systemic racism barely seems to exist in for Arrested Development. Whereas, you know, Easy e was talking about that shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you want to talk about, like, how bad gangster rap is, like, dude, they were they were getting it right on stuff that you're not even talking about. But, well, they were getting slammed, though. Like, I, I, I and that's the thing, it's like, Easy e for whatever, what, like, he had a very problematic existence, but he had encounters with law enforcement that otherwise colored his perception of of the world would i think justifiably so easy e did do things that were not necessarily legal but he also was able to see i'm not doing something illegal now and or being treated like fucking criminals this is something we had that has to stop and it, it's and all oh, by the way all policing in that farm needs to fucking stop and it's like yeah. it, anyway uh <laughs> And I don't think that Arrested Development would have disagreed with that, but they it's just, not a thing they really talk about. Like, it's it's kind of alarmingly, like, it's all telling other black people, you know, if you just learn more about Africa, you're going to get everything right. And, and it's not, not talking, like, outside of that one song, it doesn't talk about the idea of, of systemic racism at all, and it's fucking weird. Yeah, and which is really crazy, because, like, that's not going to fix your problem. Like... So the problems are nuanced, and it's both sides of this coin. And the perspective that gangster rap was coming from is this is the experience that we know, or people that we are familiar with know, and we're writing their experiences down. Uh, it's not necessarily the, the cleanest thing you're ever going to hear, but these feelings and 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 the this anger and these experiences are completely valid. And I think there's some there there's also validity in what Arrest Development's talking about. It's just it is very clearly a more privileged reality than someone who, you know, gets choked slammed by cops all the time. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's just, yeah. I'll just leave it there. I, I don't want to 
put my foot in my mouth any more than I probably already have. But, but, but like, the thing is, like, the, 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 there's the, the, I, I feel that, like, it's trying, when I, when I brought up Bill Cosby before, is that, like, Cosby was trying for much of his career to deny problems in the community because it is solely the problem of people who act incorrectly. And right. that is not the reality. Right, without, without recognizing that there's a certain logic in... And, and like, please understand that when I say this, I'm not saying that this is, like, what all black people actually do. Yeah. But, like, to go back to, like, what gangster rap songs were about, like, the lyrical content of those songs, like, you can understand why someone would maybe choose to sell drugs instead of trying to go and work in an office when they realize there is nothing I'm ever going to do that's going to advance my career to a point that I'm making a living wage. I'm going to fight my entire life for scraps or I can go out and risk my life and risk incarceration, but actually be able to support myself. I mean, in both ways you're, you're, you're risking financial ruin because if you go to, if you work in an office and some uh, annoying white person thinks that you're being aggressive, even though you are, you know, doing everything you possibly can to not make the white people afraid, someone can just say shit and then your job's over. And then that's a whole systemic issue. So that all of this, boils down to a systemic malaise that was looking for a voice and everyone was trying to find a solution and it was coming for and it, i mean it's ongoing we're still trying to find these voices and listen to people and understand what their communities need and in the early 90s there was this huge resurgence there was this huge surge of just like this is acceptable black culture and this is unacceptable black culture and some of the lyrics on this album kind of get into that fight and bill cosby is directly at the root of the this is acceptable black culture and this is unacceptable black culture and that's why i'm i feel pretty confident shit talking bill cosby for a lot of reasons but this is one of those reasons yeah no i mean lots of people got pissed off at bill cosby i mean like black people got pissed off at bill cosby for the way he presented himself and like yeah, there's a whole lot to be said about it. We are absolutely not the people to say it. We've done the best we could. Please yeah. forgive us if we fucked up. Yeah, and I, uh, but I apologize. It's stuff you can't not talk about in the context of this album because this album is very much this call to, you know, you're learning about your the heritage of your ancestors, not even really your heritage, because, I mean, how much actual contact with Africa did did, you know... Yeah, black no, teenagers in 1992 have. <laughs> yeah, no, it, but it was a it was a real resurgence trying to find a culture in which one was forcibly removed, and that is right. a burden that pretty much all white people in America in America need to understand. Is like when these when these conversations are difficult and when we have no depth talking about them, it's because we have not had our cultures forcibly fucking removed from us, and so why people why many black people prefer. Uh, black versus African American comes from this place. It's the uh, it's it's the black diaspora of just like this is there is not a clear culture beyond what people make for themselves, and albums like this are trying to fight gangster rap and saying that gangster rap's giving. A, a poor shake to people trying to form a culture 
but they're all coming at it from different perspectives and that's what i'm trying to say it's like it's like all of these things need to be appreciated and understood because even Digable Planet takes a, a third rail to what gangster rap and Arrested Development is doing. That they're just like, okay, so we need to be in our communities. We need to, you know, experience the everyday. We need to find love and art and music and experience and empower ourselves through what we can do. And it's it's that's a starkly different tone than this album. Yeah, it, and it's, I mean, I think it's a more, I mean, we kind of, like knocked that album a little bit for its cartoonishness and like again you know when we get around to blow out comb the the second digital planets album like that one is way less cartoonish and way more direct in its politics um but even something like you know a tribe called quest that's not like super political or super overtly political like there are all these other ways to to deal with this that don't come off as we are the one valid form of black culture in America. Yeah. And, and yeah, again, I don't think that like anyone in arrested development probably feels that way now, but they were much younger, you know, when they made this album and it it is. And we have to put it in context. Like the early nineties was really volatile and like the nineties for like the perception for the greater American perception of black culture was a different time. Think about how many sitcoms in the in the nineties had black casts that would never be made now, even though they probably should be. Uh, they were only made because it was an easy cash in, and that's wrong. And so, even while there was this greater sense of finding a community and finding a voice and finding a, a you know a representation of broader culture it was always at the the, the behest of, of of a white for the lack of a better term overseer making sure if they could make a make a buck off of it or not and like that's not great <laughs> yeah and so i also we've hardly said anything about what this album sounds like <laughs> um, uh, poorly mixed is what I think this album sounds like. I don't... I think that one song... Yeah, I can see... You is, like... um, But, like, what I wanted to say is it's kind of like a... Like, it doesn't have that jazzy feel that Digwell Planets and Tribe Called Quest and, like, The Far Side and stuff like that were doing. Um, To me, this kind of... It almost feels... I mean, it's way more... What... I don't I don't want to say mainstream hip hop. I mean it was more forward looking than like MC Hammer. <laughs> but, oh yeah. But it's, it's um, not danceable. It's Yeah. It, but it, it's kind of like a cleaned up version of like what Public Enemy was doing in a way. Yeah, I can hear like that. it doesn't have the like the the bomb squad production with that just used all the like you know air raid sirens and like just tons and tons of samples and and you know samples of of like speeches and stuff in it it's no it's, I, re- I really do like it to jay-z and that's odd but the more i listen to it the more i'm hearing things that he did better uh but it, it's a uh, obviously jay-z's ability to mix a song is way better than this album yeah so we've talked about this forever and we should probably start talking about ranking it um it's like yeah god damn we've done a long time um so i mean i'm looking at the the bottom of the list Uh, like i like i want to justify that a little bit because this was influential on southern hip-hop 
like Outcast in particular. Oh yeah, but Outcast does it so much better. Right, right. I mean, Southern hip hop got way better. Um, so I like to me, this is like because I think the lyrics are like they're not bad necessarily from like a poetry sense and like speech is a pretty good rapper like he he does have a flow but, but it's, man it's hard for me to want to put this higher than like above rocket and under manscape because the politics are such a weird mess and and like it, despite that influence that it had on some of the bigger southern groups like I feel like this, it was an evolutionary dead end, and like the the tribe called Quest style of alternative hip hop, like is what ended up winning in the end. Like not to make it a competition, but like it. I mean, yeah, this this tried and just it's didn't. what persevered, and this just kind of died off. Yeah, and like with reason because it's it's not it's not necessarily half baked, and it's not necessarily terrible. It's just it is not. It's not terrible, but I will also, like, you know, I'll listen to Tennessee again just because that song's catchy and I'll probably hear it, you know, at the grocery store or so something. So there's, there's a thing in poetry but, and particularly in, like, a lot of, like, literature, literary writing where people write a lot of fucking words and don't think about their context or what they actually mean in the end. They just they just go by what they feel those words mean. And I think that's what this album is. I think that it was a lot of, just like, I'm going to get my feelings out on these words. And, like, mmm... Did you double check how you're sounding here? Because it doesn't sound great. And I think that's more what the problem is. Is like a lot of Tribe Called Quest is very deliberate in what they're saying. And, you know. And fun. Like, there's yeah. just nothing fun on this there album. There is no joy in this album. No. Whatsoever. Like, even like an, a, sim a group that was similarly like anti gangster rap at the time was Black Sheep. And Black Sheep was like funny about it. Like they, it they was like they kind they were kind of they kind of knew they were losing, and so they just made it a big joke about how, you know, oh, I had a dream I was hard, <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's like I'll have to I'll have to listen to that album again and see if Black Sheep fits on the show. I I don't remember them as being like alternative enough, but they they might be. I'll have to go back and check it. But like. It, Black Sheep made me laugh and like this album is just such a downer and it's just so preachy and not like I mean there's so many anytime you're political you run the rest of being called preachy but god it's just so dour yeah and it's, it's so just like not well considered preachiness too it's like especially Mr. Wendell like that that song don't write songs like that. No, don't write about how the wisdom you get from your homeless friend. <laughs> and, like, it just... And, and just contradictory. Like, I feel like they're, it's so... Like, their morality is so Christian that it's it just completely undermines the idea of, like, the anti-colonial project they're doing. Yeah. Because Christianity was such a big part of colonization. And I mean, then that's something that it's just going to be a harder conversation to have. Like, that just yeah. straight up is. Well, so for me, that's why I I I would put it above Rocket just because Tennessee and and Give a Man a Fish are really good. Yeah, I mean, I and I, I, would, I would, be would put it below Manscape because Torch It is like the song on that album that I think of as like expressing that album's politics, and it's so much more relevant now, and it has aged so much better than than anything on this. 
I mean, I'd be fine putting above Manscaped, but I think it does belong just above Rocket. I think that's like, and that's we haven't we haven't hit this bottom of the list in a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this album is one of those you're just like, I just I didn't. And sometimes I have a, I have problems listening to albums like that. Love's Lives, Lives Crushing album I had issues listening to. This one I'd just be like, oh come on, and just turn it off for a while, and I couldn't deal with the lyrics <laughs> because and it was. I think it's maybe because like I know. I know many people who are directly affected by uh, mentalities that are, you know, espoused in these songs. Then that yeah. that really that really made me sad and frustrated. And it, so it's, yeah, I think the new number twenty uh, thirty two thirty two. Holy shit! How many songs? How many albums? Uh, this will be thirty four. Oh lord. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, that, we'll put that one in at number 32. So that puts it between uh, Wire's Manscape and Primitive Radio God's Rocket. All right, so let's um, read out the top 10 as always. <clears throat> oh, Fei Wong fell out of the top 10. That sucks. Anyway, it was about to happen. You did it. I know. <laughs> we did it together. Um, so number 10 is now What's the Story Morning Glory by Oasis. Number 9 is Eight Arms to Hold You by Veruca Salt. Number eight is Ten by Pearl Jam. Number seven, Without You, I'm Nothing by Placebo. Number six, Kill Uncle by Morrissey. Number five, Superstition by Susie and the Banshees. Number four, The Philosophy of Momus by Momus. Number three, Liberation by The Divine Comedy. Number two, Get Lost by The Magnetic Fields. And the new number one, None Such by XTC. And if you want to see our entire list of 34 albums that we've ranked at this point, you can go to bit.ly slash nr1990s. That's bit.ly slash nr1990s. You can also search for nr1990s on Spotify to find our official show playlist with every album we've ever ranked on it. And you can also listen to all our episodes there. You can listen to them on YouTube, except for... Uh, this in episode sixteen, which I haven't put up yet, because I had I was dying of a tooth, a dying of a tooth. Let's just put it that way. She's allowed. And um, we will be back next week. And what are you bringing for us to rank next week, Adrian? I am bringing the surprisingly influential alt country album "No Depression" by Uncle Tupelo. Every time I hear that, I think of "No Children" by the Mountain Goats. Well, this is better than that. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's. Real good song. Remember what the Mountain Goats did to you. It's fine. I, I know. Some someday when it's relevant, I will tell my Mountain Goats story of my my wild night <laughs> sleeping downstairs from the Mountain Goats. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, so I am going to bring the polar opposite of that. Um, the 1991 Santa Ten album, um, Fox Space Alpha. I did not realize until today that Fox Space Alpha came out before So Tough. I'm a bad Santa 10 fan. I don't know too much. I know I have some Santa 10 album, like, albums, but songs littered throughout my music, but, like, they were not... That's something I listen to all the time. Yeah, I and did not realize Fox Space Alpha... I thought, I've always thought Fox Space Alpha was their second album, and So Tough was the first, but it is the other way around. Fox Space Alpha was their debut. That's cool. And Uncle Tupelo, uh... Band some people who probably you probably haven't heard of, uh, but unless you know anything about all country, and then you go like, oh hell yeah, because it's time. <laughs> I've heard the name. I don't know that I've ever heard a song by them. Anyway, my tooth hurts. I want to go take a painkiller and get in bed. Um, so we'll be back next week. 
And until then, please, God, listen to none such if you've never, if you never have such a great album. See you next week.